You're listening to Stanford Out Loud. We bring you stories from Stanford Magazine, featuring voices of our campus community. I'm your host, Kevin Cool, editor of Stanford Magazine. The story in this episode will be read by Professor Harant Kachadorian, Emeritus Professor of Human Biology and Psychiatry. Professor Kachadorian created Stanford's course on human sexuality in the late 1960s. I was on a committee. They were very concerned about, you know, venereal disease, as we used to call it, pregnancy. And so I said at one point, well, if you people are so worried about these things, why doesn't somebody, you know, teach a course? It was a long silence, and then somebody said, it's a very good idea. You, you do it. <laughs> Professor Kachadorian taught Stanford's course on human sexuality to more than 20,000 students over three decades. But he wasn't the first person on Stanford's campus to study sex. A year after the university had opened, somebody taught a course on hygiene. This was sort of a code word for also teaching about sexuality. An undergraduate student in the hygiene department was Clelia Mosher, the main subject of this story. Mosher was, in her spare time, working on a secret survey. It wasn't published, so nobody knew about it. Then one day, when the rest of the world was ready for it, the secret was out. Here's the story. It was 1973. The historian Carl Degler was combing the university archives, gathering research for a book on the history of the family. He was sifting through the papers of Dr. Clelia Mosher, who taught in Stanford's hygiene department around the turn of the 20th century, when he came across a mysteriously bound file. Degler nearly put it aside, figuring it was a manuscript for one of Mosher's published works. She mostly wrote statistical treatises on women's height, strength, and menstruation. But something made him pause, and he opened it. Inside was a stack of questionnaires. He leafed through them and saw that they contained the intimate thoughts of dozens of women, most of them born before 1870. It was a sex survey, a Victorian sex survey. The earliest known study of this type, long preceding, for example, the Kinsey reports, whose oldest female respondents were born in the 1890s. The Mosher survey recorded not only women's sexual habits and appetites, but also their thoughts about their spousal relationships, children, and contraception. And it hinted that perhaps Victorian women weren't so Victorian after all. The survey's origin, like its rediscovery, was a lucky accident. In 1892, Mosher was a 28-year-old biology undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. She was asked to give a talk to a local mother's club on the subject of marital relations. Being a single childless woman, Mosher seems to have collected data from married women to fill in the gaps in her knowledge. And after she gave the talk at the mother's club, she didn't stop conducting surveys. 
She continued the project for 18 more years. She recorded 45 profiles in all, but she never analyzed or published the data, and the survey was entirely forgotten until Degler came upon it in 1973. When he realized what he was holding that day, Degler was overcome by surprise. I said to the librarian there, Degler said, did anyone ever use these papers before? I was sure that they'd been used before, and they said no. No one ever had looked at any of the papers and certainly not at that survey. That's one of the great experiences of my life as a historian, said Degler. Degler alerted the world to the survey's existence in 1974 in the American Historical Review, and since then it's been cited by a number of researchers. Stanford historian Estelle Friedman co-wrote the book Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America. She says Mosher's survey was a goldmine for scholars. In that era, the public ideal was that women should be very discreet, if not ignorant, about sexuality. But Mosher asked very modern questions about feelings and experiences, opening an inquiry about the meaning of sexuality for women. The survey is small and non-representative, favoring well-educated, middle-class white women and only those willing to disclose intimate matters. But it contradicts the stereotype that Victorian women knew little of sex and sexual desire. Indeed, many of the surveyed women were decidedly unshrinking in their attitudes about sex. One, born in 1844, called sex a normal desire and observed that a rational use of it tends to keep people healthier. Another, born in 1862, called sex a very beautiful thing and said, I am glad nature gave it to us. Mosher took care to obscure her subject's identities, but the group probably included Stanford faculty and wives, the Mother's Club members from Mosher's Wisconsin days and other women she knew. Of the 45 women surveyed, 34 had attended university or teacher's college. 30 respondents had worked before marriage, mostly as teachers. Slightly more than half of these educated women said they knew nothing about sex before getting married. The better informed said they had gotten their information from books, talks with older women, and natural observations like watching farm animals. Yet, no matter how sheltered they had initially been, these women had sex and enjoyed it. 35 said they had desired sex. 34 said they had experienced orgasms. 24 felt that pleasure for both sexes was a reason for intercourse, and about three-quarters of them engaged in sex at least once a week. Like her survey, Moshe's life was testimony to the complex desires of women who were caught between 19th century norms and 20th century freedoms. Born in 1863 in Albany, New York, 
Young Clelia had a scientific bent that was encouraged by her father, who was a doctor. He took her on his medical rounds and taught her to love botany and literature. But he couldn't bear to let her attend college, which was then considered a strain on a woman's health. He tried to distract Clelia by helping her set up a small florist shop, but she saved tuition money and went anyway. Mosher's college career was somewhat nomadic. She studied at Wellesley and the University of Wisconsin before eventually enrolling in Stanford's second class of students in 1892. She received a physiology degree in 1893 and her master's in physiology in 1894 while working in the Department of Hygiene teaching health, physiology, and exercise to female students. Mosher's goal as a researcher was to prove that women were not inferior to men and that frailties attributed to them were really the effects of binding garments, insufficient exercise, and mental conditioning. For example, at that time, people believed that men breathe from the diaphragm and women breathe from the chest. Mosher's master's thesis showed that this was a misconception. The only reason people thought women breathe from the chest was because of their tight corsets. In comfortable clothing, women also breathe from the diaphragm. Mosher also wanted to upend the idea that menstruation debilitated women. So she started tracking students' menstrual periods. Again, she blames nurture over nature. Painful menstruation, she concluded, was in most cases caused by inactivity, poor muscular development, and the very idea of inevitable illness. Sending girls to bed to dwell upon their discomfort, Mosher wrote, produces a morbid attitude and favors the development of exaggeration of symptoms. Mosher was not subtle about her motivation for this research. She said, equal pay for women means equal work. She was convinced that women should keep working throughout their periods and she even invented abdominal exercises to counteract menstrual pain. These exercises were known as Mosher's. By the time Mosher received her MD in 1900, there were approximately 7,000 female doctors and surgeons in the United States, almost 6% of the total. But they still faced discrimination. Mosher opened a private practice, but struggled to get patient referrals from male colleagues or win grants to fund her menstruation studies. When Stanford offered her an assistant professorship in personal hygiene in 1910, she eagerly returned to academic life. Finally, she had found what mattered to her, a living wage, intellectual freedom, and access to research subjects. She became a full professor in 1928, one year before she retired. Elizabeth Grego spent the early 1980s sifting through Clelia Mosher's papers in the Stanford archives. 
She wrote her dissertation on Mosher for an education doctorate at UC Berkeley. She calls Mosher an intellectual loner who didn't join women's professional groups or bond with many female academics. She wasn't interested in teas, says Grego, and she wasn't particularly interested in nurturing or mentoring women. She was really a researcher, and she wanted to be accepted for her scientific approach to subjects. Mosher cut an odd figure on campus in the mannish suit she always wore. In her writings, she railed against fashion. Sewing dainty clothing wasted women's study time. A young girl kept inside embroidering while her brother played ball would grow feeble and sedentary. Mosher never married and had few close relationships. She confided this to her diary in 1919. I am finding out gradually why I am so lonely, she wrote. The only things I care about are things which use my brain. The women I meet are not so much interested, and I do not meet many men. So there's an intellectual solitude, which is like the solitude of the desert, dangerous to one's sanity. Her surviving writings hint at her longing for connection. The most poignant is a series of letters to an imaginary friend. Dear friend who never was, she wrote in 1926, I have given up ever finding you. I have tried out all my friends and they have not measured up to my dreams. Mosher's story is an ironic one. She was a staunch feminist who remained aloof from sisterhood. A woman who rigorously researched sex and marriage, but probably never experienced either. She was a pioneering scholar who longed for recognition, but did not live to enjoy it. Mosher was acutely aware of her own foresight. She speculated about the possibilities that lay ahead for women once sex became less of a secret and gender less of a burden. In 1923, she wrote, the woman of the rising generation will answer the question of what woman's real capacities are. She will have physical, economic, racial, and civic freedom. What will she do with it? The original version of this story was written by Kara Platani and appeared in the March 2010 issue of Stanford Magazine. Thanks to Professor Harant Kachadorian for reading it. Stanford Out Loud is produced by Charity Ferreira and Will Rogers and brought to you by the Stanford Alumni Association. For more of our stories, visit stanfordmag.org.